Jude 11 through 13 will be the reading. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, now we come to you and uh, we seek the help that your Spirit uh, will give us as we listen to your word and, and meditate and think on it, Father, we, we hear this word of warning this morning, serious words coming to us from uh, Jude's letter, and so we ask you for help, that you would open our hearts to understand uh, what this is saying to us today and apply it to our situation. And Lord, we, we recognize that you are at work not only um, through this congregation, but in many congregations that are gathered together this morning. We think of one in particular, uh, the Oak Lake Evangelical Free Church uh, in Lincoln. Uh, we lift up this congregation to you. We lift up Pastor Jason and his wife Tammy uh, there. We pray that you would bless uh, them as they serve that church and help uh, this congregation as they hear your word this morning, that they would grow in their faith and understanding, that they would be strengthened to serve you uh, in Lincoln and the surrounding area. And Father, we also pray for our children as they are gathering together downstairs uh, to hear your word, to, to think about it together, um, that they would also, Lord, grow to love you and, and be able to serve you throughout their lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. On uh, September the 12th, 1864, Union Army General William T. Sherman wrote a letter to three men who were in top positions of leadership over the city of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, those three men were the mayor uh, of the city and two city council members. The city of Atlanta had supported the Confederate Army in many ways uh, for their war effort during the Civil War, supplying ammunition, supplying tools, uh, food, and other needed supplies, and it was a railway hub that served as a major center um, for the supply lines in the Confederate war effort, and therefore it was a key objective um, for the Union Army to control that city. So in September 1864, the Union Army under General Sherman occupied the city of Atlanta uh, after many uh, uh, bloody battles on their way there. Uh, but they were not planning on staying in Atlanta for long. They had other objectives and other southern strongholds to defeat in order to put an end to that great conflict. Uh, therefore, General Sherman was making plans to eliminate the city's ability to manufacture and ship war supplies uh, for the Confederate Army. The letter he sent to the leaders of the city was a letter of warning. He was serving them notice so that they could warn the residents of the city that they had better abandon their homes in the city 
and in particular, the elderly who would be the most in need of help. So in the letter, Sherman couldn't reveal exactly what their military plans were for the city, but he was able to provide them with a clear warning. He wrote this, I assert that our military plans make it necessary for the inhabitants to go away, and I can only renew my offer of services to make their exodus in any direction as easy and comfortable as possible. And then he then used strong language for the reason why they better go. They better leave the city. He said, you cannot qualify war in harsher terms than I will. War is cruelty, and you cannot refine it. And those who brought war into our country deserve all the curses and maledictions a people can pour out. He then concluded the letter with one last appeal to the people of Atlanta. He says, now you must go and take with you the old and feeble, feed and nurse them and build for them in more quiet places, proper habitations, to shield them against the weather until the mad passions of men cool down and allow the union and peace once more to settle over your old homes at Atlanta. Yours in haste, W.T. Sherman. Well, two months later, in uh, early November of 1864, uh, Sherman's word of warning was fulfilled as his army began burning the city of Atlanta, beginning with the manufacturing plants and warehouses that were the main suppliers for the Confederate war effort at the time. And after Sherman left the city, uh, it was uh, leveled with over 3,000 buildings destroyed. It was no longer able then to serve the Confederate army as it had throughout the war. So it cannot be overstated how immensely important it was for the leaders of Atlanta in 1864 to have taken Sherman's words of warning seriously. And as we come to verse 11 here in our letter from Jude, we see that his language is getting even more serious. This is also a letter of warning. It's a warning to the church as well as a warning to the teachers who had crept into that church and were seeking to lead the people away from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says there, uh, beginning of verse 11, Woe to them! Woe to them! Woe to those who would seek to speak against God's word! Woe to anyone who would cause one of these little ones to sin! He's using the same strong language that Jesus used against the false teachers of his day, against the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees who are trying to lead the people away from Jesus. Woe to them. May they be cursed. John Calvin, the great reformer, helps us to understand Jude's warning here for the church when he says, when he pronounced woe on them, he did not so much imprecate evil on them, but rather reminded them what sort of end awaited them, and he did so lest he should carry others with them to perdition. It was a word of warning both to the false teachers as well as to the church members 
God's judgment is coming for such people. And if you want to avoid it, then get as far away from these men and from their teaching as you can. So our main, our main theme then from these uh, few verses in Jude this morning, beware of leaders who place their own self-interests and wisdom over God's word. This is what Jude is warning us about. Beware of leaders who place their own self-interests and wisdom over God's word. Once again, uh, Jude is looking back here to the history of God's people in the Old Testament, and he's found examples in the Old Testament of leaders whom God judged for their misleading influence on the people. They were each poor leaders uh, who led according to their own self-interest and had no interest in honoring the Lord. They, they went their own way, and Jude wants to convince his readers that going your own way or following leaders who are only interested in serving themselves, that leads to disaster. Rebellion will lead to disaster. Uh, the structure of this passage here um, uh, uh, has Jude's uh, Old Testament examples in verse 11 as the first part that we'll take a look at, and then Jude gives six different descriptions there in verses 12 and 13, uh, using six different metaphors from the natural world uh, to warn his readers to keep away from these troublemakers. And so we'll focus on uh, the three examples in the first part and then on the, each, of, each of those metaphors uh, from creation that he uses there in the second part of the message. But first, I um, just want to start with an application for us, simply taking out just one assumption that Jude is making uh, regarding his readers that I think it's important for us to notice. So, uh, first part of our message is in three examples of self-interested leaders who went their own way. Look again at verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked. They are, of course, the false teachers here. They walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. I wonder if you recognize these names. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. I wonder if you know their stories. Where did these guys go wrong? Do you know why Jude would mention them and say that the false teachers were similar to them? In fact, were imitating them and what they did that led to their condemnation. Now, I'll admit... These are not the most familiar Old Testament characters for us. Uh, you may recognize the name of Cain and know, know his story, but, but Balaam, do you know him? you know Korah? So here's my observation that I think we need to consider as we begin this morning. Jude here, the author of this letter, assumes that the Christians in his congregation that he's writing to here, he assumes they are very familiar with these names. He assumes that, that they know these names, that they know their stories, and they know them so well that he doesn't need to give one word of explanation for who they are and what they did. He just assumes his readers will immediately know who and what he is referring to when he mentions the way of Cain and Balaam's error 
and Korah's rebellion. But the question, I think, for us is, do, do we know? And if we don't know, what might that say about us? One of the greatest problems for the evangelical church in our culture today is that we just don't know the Bible. We just don't know it. And the one part of the Bible that we are most unfamiliar with is the Old Testament, which of course means about 75% of the Bible is not familiar to us. And the New Testament uses references from the Old Testament so often, as Jude is, is using throughout this letter, using references to the Old Testament so often that it's very difficult for us to understand much of the New Testament without a basic understanding of the names, places, stories, and lessons from the Old Testament. And verse 11 here is just one clear example of that. Now, now, now hear me, if you are familiar with these names, and if you even know the book, chapter, and verse where these names may be found, it doesn't mean that you are automatically this, this much stronger and greater Christian than those who, who might not know. But, but I think one of the greatest needs of our day is for Christians to be much more familiar with their Bibles, to know their Bibles, to be very familiar with the overall message of the Bible. The Bible has formed and shaped God's people from the very beginning, and we ought to know this book far better than we know any other book. We ought to know the biblical storyline and characters far better than any other storyline or any other characters from our favorite movies or fictional books or TV series that we might enjoy. This is really only one, there really is only one main way to do that, and that is to devote time to reading it, to studying it with others, to thinking about it. Another great way, of course, is to, to, to learn the Bible is to teach it to others, your children, the children here at our church. We ought to know our Bibles much, much better than we do. I just think that was striking to see these names and then no explanation as to who they are. Why? Because he assumes they already, they already know. They're familiar. So the example of Cain, let's look at Cain. Uh, this, this example of Cain is found way back at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel were the first sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, they were both farmers. Uh, Cain worked the ground. Abel raised livestock. Cain offered some of the fruits of his labor to the Lord, and Abel also brought, uh, it says, the firstborn of his flock to the Lord as an offering. And we are told in Genesis 4, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And this made Cain very angry. So the Lord speaks to Cain about his anger, and Cain receives the Lord's word, which warns him that sin is seeking to master him, and he must rule over it. And what does Cain do with the word of the Lord? He rejects it. He ignores it. He acts as if the Lord didn't really mean what he said, and Cain goes his own way, and Cain kills his brother Abel, and then tries to conceal his crime, but of course the Lord knows and passes judgment on Cain, cursing his work and his way 
of life. And Jude says, beware, beware. These teachers are imitating Cain. They're going in the way of Cain. They are, they are, they are trying to teach you that, that God really doesn't mean what he says in his word. That his word can be safely ignored. And Jude's warning them, don't follow them. They are following Cain's way. Remember what happened to Cain. Remember where his way led him. And then Balaam. Balaam's story is one of those uh, more interesting stories in all the book of Numbers and uh, maybe even all of the Old Testament. It's a very interesting story. He was a prophet that was basically for hire, uh, which was always recognized as evil in the Old Testament. Uh, the true prophets serving God's people refused to receive payment or gifts for their services. But Balaam, on the, on the other hand, was hired by Balak, the king of the Moabites, uh, to prophesy a curse on the Israelites. However, Balaam uh, did know his limitations. Um, uh, this is in verses uh, chapter 22 uh, and, and uh, through, through 24 of Numbers. He told Balak that as a prophet, uh, he could only speak the words that the Lord put in his mouth to say. Uh, but the author of the story makes it clear to us Balaam really wants to get paid here. He really wants uh, to get paid uh, by Balak and so tries to curse the Israelites every time Balak asks him to, but is unable to each time. Each time, instead of speaking uh, God's words of, of curse over the people, he speaks God's words of blessing over the people. But then, since he's not able to prophesy a curse over Israel, well... He simply advises King Balak and the Moabites to entice the men of Israel to sin by way of sexual immorality with their women and then have the women lead their men into idolatry and the worship of their pagan gods. And the Moabites take Balaam's advice and that's exactly what happens. So Judah's saying here, beware, these guys that crept into your church they are imitating Balaam. They are greedy, they're self-interested, and they're following in Balaam's way of leading people astray into sexual immorality and idolatry, which always go together. And then the last Old Testament character that Jude compares these false teachers with is Korah, saying essentially they perished in Korah's rebellion. In other words, these intruders who have crept into your church, are going in the same way as Korah. They are rebelling against God and how he had ordained the church to be led and that their judgment is as certain as Korah's was when he rebelled against God, uh, against how God had ordained Israel to be led. This again is from uh, the book of Numbers, number 16. Um, he says here about them, these false teachers, they perished, that, that is past tense, they perished in Korah's rebellion. That is, Jude was referring to when he said back in verse 4, a few weeks ago, uh, where he said there, long ago they, that is these false teachers, were designated for this condemnation. That is, their actions are so similar uh, to what we've seen in the past of rebels who reject God's order of things and seek to do things their own way, that their condemnation is assured. You can even read about it by, by seeing what happened to Korah 
and his household when he rebelled against God in Numbers 16. So Korah had led 250 men to challenge the leadership of Moses and Aaron, claiming that they were exalting themselves over the whole assembly of Israel. In other words, claiming that Moses and Aaron are self-interested leaders. He was saying, Korah saying, all in the congregation are holy. Every one of them is holy. He didn't like this hierarchy that he was seeing with, with Moses claiming the Lord only spoke through him. I mean, he says, can't the Lord speak through everyone? Weren't, weren't they all the people of God? Who's to say that Moses is the only one who can lead the people? So Korah was directly challenging the authority that God had specifically given to Moses as his prophet, as his spokesperson. So Moses then spoke to the Lord about this, and the Lord said to gather all Israel together the next morning, and the Lord would make clear whom he had chosen as his spokesman. But before God poured out his judgment on Korah and his household, he gave a warning to Moses to share with the people. And I'm going to read that, that warning with you. He says, um, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah. And then we read how the Lord judged Korah and his household, as well as the 250 men who followed him in his rebellion against the Lord. That's in number 16, 28 through 25 here, or through 35. Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to, all these, to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If, if these men die, as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, that is the place of the dead, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. So Jude is warning the church, like Moses warned the people of Israel, stay away from these men. Stay away from their teaching. They are not just rebelling against the apostles' teaching authority. They are rebelling against the Lord like Korah, and you all know what happened to him. Just as surely as Korah faced God's judgment, so these men will be condemned and all who follow them. So think for a moment with me about all the ways our culture, and sadly, so many churches who are following the culture, have rebelled against the way that God has ordered things, how God has set up things. God has created human beings in his own image, male and female, in the image of God. And we say, well, we don't like that. 
just two sexes limits our freedom. Anyone can be a woman, anyone can be a man, it doesn't matter what their bodies may say, it doesn't matter how they were born, it doesn't matter what their birth certificates say, anyone can be whoever they want to be. God has ordained marriage to be between one man and one woman. When he created the one man, Adam, and the one woman, Eve, and gave her to the man as his wife. We don't like that arrangement. We don't like how God has set that up. Again, it is far too limiting and oppressive. Anyone can marry anyone else, whoever they want to be, be it a man or a woman, and marriage being just between one man and one woman is far too limiting. I mean, you can be married as many times and as in as many ways to whomever you want to be married to. And in the church, God has ordained certain qualifications for who can be elders and who can be pastors. But once again, we don't like God's way of limiting those roles to just certain qualified people. We say things like, all in the congregation are holy. Every one of them. We're all God's people. The Lord is among all of us. We can't restrict ourselves to just qualified men to be elders and pastors. That doesn't seem right to us. And so, following the culture, churches have rebelled against the Lord's way in those things. And Jude says, beware. Beware. Stay away from them. Rebelling against these things is rebelling against God himself. Rebellion against God's will will lead to disaster, as it did for Korah and those with him. In verses 12 and 13 here, we see following leaders who reject God's word will leave you empty, malnourished, and ultimately in darkness. Verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid on them, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So here, here it is, Here's, here are vivid descriptions of just who these false teachers are and what will happen to the church if they continue to put up with them. They are hidden reefs. A hidden reef is just one of the many dangers that sea vessels must do their best to avoid. A reef is a, a ridge of rocks or sand that, that lies uh, either just at the surface of the water or just below uh, the surface if it is hidden. And they can do serious damage to any boat that gets too close uh, to one of these reefs. Any, any careful sea captain will, will do their best to avoid hidden reefs at any cost. Otherwise, it would lead to disaster for them, not to mention uh, for their passengers as well. And Jude goes on to say that these false teachers, they were feasting with them at their love feasts without fear. These would have been fellowship meals the church would have enjoyed together, which would have included partaking in the Lord's table. And in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul gives a warning to the church 
about those who would partake in the Lord's table who were not believers. And so Jude is saying here that these leaders were fully acting like they were believers, like, like those in the church, but they were keeping their true loyalties hidden. So Jude is warning believers here. They may seem safe, but beware, keep your distance. They're hidden reefs, which if you get too close to them and accept their teaching, you will make shipwreck of your lives. And that's something we must note as well. So often false teachers will seem very safe. They will look like Christians. They will sound like Christians. They will, they will use scripture when they teach. It may even seem like they know the Bible way better than you do. And that's why one of the primary ways to defend yourself and your church from being fooled by them is to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 when Paul and Silas preached the gospel to the people in Berea. Um, it says, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So let us, brothers and sisters, examine our scriptures daily. Let us get more and more familiar with what is in our Bible. And God's Spirit will reveal the truth to us in his word. And in that way, the Lord will keep you, keep us from shipwreck. He goes on, it says, there were also shepherds feeding themselves. This is a reference uh, to Ezekiel chapter 34, uh, where the Lord commanded Ezekiel to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, that is, the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel. And the Lord there was condemning them for feeding themselves and not feeding the sheep. The chapter is not just a scathing rebuke of self-interested spiritual leaders, it is also a sad description of what happens to the people when their spiritual leaders don't care for them, don't feed them. He says there in Ezekiel 34, uh, the sheep were scattered, they have become a prey, they have become food for all the wild beasts. So again, what happens when a church allows itself to be led by leaders or pastors who are only interested in themselves? It's a disaster. It's a disaster. It leaves the people Weak, it leaves the people um, unprotected from Satan's attacks. It says they're also like waterless clouds. Now, we have been so grateful, haven't we, this past week, to receive rain? After this whole month of June, when we saw a lot of waterless clouds pass by, waterless clouds may be nice um, if you have an outdoor wedding planned, but if you and your family's whole existence depends upon whether or not your fields produce the grain that you have worked so hard to plant, well, then waterless clouds are very bitter discouragements for you. Israel is, of course, in a very arid climate, and, and rain is scarce there. And when clouds rise up in the west from the Mediterranean Sea, it also brings this great hope of rain to those whose lives depend upon raising crops from the fields and fruit from the vines. And Judah's saying, these false teachers are like waterless clouds. They, they promised much, but they delivered very little. Much like the, the fruitless trees here in late autumn that he also describes. Then in verse 13, Jude describes these misleading teachers as 
as wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. With this vivid description, Judas warning the people of their wickedness, the wickedness of these teachers. He's already alerted his readers uh, that they were perverting the grace of God into sensuality back in verse 4, and he compared their sin to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, how they were indulging in sexual immorality. So here he goes back to what the prophet Isaiah said about certain leaders of Israel that God was condemning then, back in uh, Isaiah 57, verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. So what is one of the main things that's bringing shame upon the church today in our culture? What behavior is making the churches in our nation look dirty with shame? Well, it's, it's primarily the scandals of sexual immorality among leaders and pastors. And Jude here, as in the rest of the Bible, is reminding us that no matter what the world may lead us to think about sex outside of marriage, it is immoral. It is evil. And it will lead to disastrous consequences and will bring shame upon the church. So take care, Jude's saying. Take care with the type of men you trust with spiritual leadership in your churches. Lastly, verse 13, he calls these teachers wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is just another seafaring illustration here he's using. Sea captains use the stars to chart their course on the sea and make sure they're heading in the right direction in order to reach their destination. But some of the stars in the night sky wandered around. Those were actually the planets that, that, that could be seen uh, in a clear night sky. And if the stars that you're using to guide you at sea are wandering around, and, and, and instead of remaining firmly in place, well, then they would lead you astray. They would get you lost at sea, which is a disaster to be lost at sea. They, they give misleading guidance to travelers. So Jude's saying, beware, beware. False teachers here are like wandering stars that instead of leading you to the light will lead you into the utter darkness of hell. As I've considered these verses this past week and really the entire letter of Jude this one main application continues to rise up in my mind. That is the critical need churches have for faithful, humble shepherds. After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus appeared before his disciples while they were out fishing early one morning. And when Peter, who was in the boat, recognized Jesus on the shore, he, he, he leaped out of the boat while it was still out in the lake and swam to the shore to be with Jesus. And Jesus took Peter aside and asked him three questions and then gave Peter three commands. That's in John chapter 21. They were crucially important questions and crucially important commands for every pastor or shepherd of a church. The Lord asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? 
And each time Peter answered in the affirmative, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And then after each, each answer that Peter gave, the Lord gave him this command. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. The church needs pastors, teachers, and leaders who love the Lord Jesus and whose lives reflect that love in clear, demonstrable ways. But not just leaders who love the Lord, who have a good heart, but also pastors and teachers who can faithfully feed the sheep, who have a passion for teaching and preaching God's word clearly and fully and accurately. So may this church, may you always take care to only call such pastors. And may we support and encourage other churches in our district and in our community and in the world to raise up such pastors and church leaders who, instead of being shepherds who feed only themselves, will follow the good shepherd in willingly laying down their lives in order to provide for what their sheep really need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we are humbled by your word once again and we recognize the needs of the church today. Oh, we're saddened, Father, by so many churches that have gone the way of Korah or followed the way of Balaam or the way of Cain. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring revival you would bring spirit to your people, to your churches, that once again, Father, we would see the spirit at work in this community, in our state, in our nation, throughout the world, with Christians being alive, with spiritual life, and pastors proclaiming the truth of your word, people turning away and repenting of sin, and disobedience. We pray for that. We call to you for that, Lord. We also pray for help here in, in our congregation that we will be faithful to follow you, to love the Lord Jesus with all our heart, and to faithfully proclaim the truth of the gospel from this pulpit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.